This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Okay, we got through Augustine. Now I want to get to, if I can, Anselm. Dates are 1033 to 1109. I'll explain why I've made the jump in the intro. We are now in intro. And we talk about the pre-scholastic period. Some people call it the Dark Ages. From 600 to about 1000 A.D. While there are a number of theologians, generally speaking, there were no major developments theologically. That's why I've made the jump from Augustine to Anselm. And the next, there's a couple of people I'll mention here in just a moment, but the next major, major person after Augustine is Anselm. In general, the church after Augustine moved along in what I called earlier a semi-Augustinian mode theologically. That was established at the Second Council of Orange in 529. And Augustine's ideas, generally speaking, were, in the Middle Ages, uh, they, they were the ones that controlled the theology of the church from 600 to 1000 A.D. Uh, now, to be sure, there were some writings that circulated under the name of Augustine that turned out to be, in fact, writings of someone else who were not theologically Augustinian. So you do have misunderstandings from time to time and misinterpretations of Augustine from time to time as well. But generally speaking, uh, you will find that most theologians see themselves as explicating, continuing the basic thrust of Augustine's thought. And they more or less succeed. Now, the most important figure immediately after Augustine is Pope Gregory I, or Gregory the Great. And he is significant for lots of reasons, but one of those reasons is not because he was innovative theologically. He was self-consciously Augustinian. And he is really, in many ways, the first great medieval Catholic. A great administrator, teacher, and writer. But he did not make any major new innovative theological uh, contributions. And the only other person that we could mention, and I will in passing, is Scotus Erigena. As another person who was, he died at the end of the ninth century. So really, uh, when you look at the Middle Ages, and, and many people say the Middle Ages begin or began with Augustine, he certainly is the theological foundation for the Middle Ages. But the next major person is Anselm. 
uh, 590. Uh, he died in 604. I don't have his, his birth. So he died early 7th century. And Scotus uh, Erigena died at the end, died in 880 A.D. 880 A.D. Warren? Uh, yeah, thereabouts. And the Dark Ages is, the Dark Ages is, a, is a smaller, a sub-component of the Middle Ages as a whole. So I'm, I'm just saying that what people sometimes call the Dark Ages are the years from like 600 to 1000 A.D., when, when there were no major theological developments. And that's why it's fairly easy, particularly when you're in a survey course, to jump from Augustine to Anselm. Are you satisfied, Jennery? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Now Anselm is is often has been called the second Augustine. Other times he was called the tongue of Augustine because he self-consciously sought to emulate the teachings of Augustine. Anselm is also considered by some to be the father of medieval scholasticism. Now that raises a very important point. Most often when we talk about scholasticism, the furthest thing we have in our minds is Augustinian theology. What I am arguing, and I think is, is really not terribly debatable, is that scholasticism, although it employed Aristotelian methodology, was in spirit and in general content Augustinian. So do not in your minds pit scholasticism against Augustinianism. The two were in large part one. Three chief writings of his, and I'll mention these, I'll talk about each of these as I go along. Uh, the Monologium, the Proslogium, and Cur Deus Homo. I'll explain each of those later. But those are his three most famous works. Uh, I don't have those up there, so just just remember those. I'll I'll explain those as I as I go along. Okay. The Monologium is a uh, just a sort of a a monologue, really where he talks about uh, the being of God. Uh, and he touches on the question of the Trinity. I'll, I'll make that point here in a moment. The proslogium is, deals with the very famous ontological argument. Anselm uh, is the first to formulate a clear ontological argument. And the other work, Cur Deus Homo, means why the God-man. deals with the incarnation of Christ and explains why God became man and thus deals with the question of the atonement. Now, those three works, when you talk about Anselm, those are the three works that come to mind for most people. And that's good and well. But I want to just mention, by way of introduction, that he wrote on a number of other things that we don't often talk about. He wrote on questions like original sin, free will, foreordination, and the origin of evil. The Trinity, original sin, free will, foreordination, and the origin of evil. 
So he wrote about all of those very typical medieval topics. Free will, original sin, foreordination, and the origin of evil. So he was very typical. He set the stage for what is known as medieval scholasticism. His life. He was born in Aosta, Aosta, A-O-S-T-A, in northern Italy. Uh, Particularly that area where it borders between northern Italy and Switzerland is where this is. He came from nobility. Both his mother and his father were from noble stock. His father is Gundolf. How would you like to name your son that? Gundolf. Well, the, the most significant feature about Gundolf is that he did not want his son Anselm to become a cleric. And this young son seemed to have this real interest in matters of religion. And the father absolutely prohibited his son from entering into the ministry. And Anselm obeyed his father. It was not a good relationship. And it was only when his mother died, and I'm not going to try to to, uh, say her name, Ermenberga, I guess I will, Ermenberga. She died in 1056, and with her gone, young Anselm, age 23, felt, now I can break away from my father and do what I want. So, one thing to know about this, if you want to try to get some insight into the humanity of Anselm, appreciate that he did not get along with his father. Uh, That may have something to do with his attachment later on to a man named Lanfranc. At any rate, uh, that's in Italy. In 1056, he leaves his father's home in Italy and crosses the Alps and becomes, in effect, a wandering scholar. He is a young man who is terribly interested in theology. Uh, At this point, he no longer has uh, an abiding desire to become a monk, but he mainly wants just to learn theology. And so he crosses the Alps and goes to France in 1056. And he spends three years traveling around France, going from monastery to monastery, particularly those monasteries that were famed for learning. And finally, after three years, he made his way to the very famous Benedictine monastery called Lebec. And there, the abbot of Lebec was a man named Lanfranc, L-A-N-F-R-A-N-C. Lanfranc was famous for his intellectual abilities. And so there was a natural sort of, of relationship that developed between Anselm and Lanfranc. One might argue that Lanfranc was the father that Anselm never had. Lanfranc is famous for a number of other situations uh, besides his relationship to Anselm. Just a quick little aside. Lanfranc is famous for the controversy he got involved in with Berengar of Tours, a French monk. 
This is interesting. Berengar was a French monk who challenged the doctrine of transubstantiation. We Protestants sometimes believe that all Catholics have always believed in transubstantiation. And while that is a view that emerges from about the 9th century, even as late as now the 11th century, you find a major controversy emerging. And the question is simply this. Is there a real transubstantiation? Berengar, a scholar of note, says no. Lanfranc takes the other view and upholds the traditional doctrine of transubstantiation in its essence and humiliates Berengar, forces him to recant his objections. And in order to keep his life, uh, Berengar does recant. And then Lanfranc then brings about and is the, the, the force behind the Council of Tours in 1059. And that becomes the first official church affirmation of a full-fledged doctrine of transubstantiation. The Council of Tours, 1059. That's reaffirmed in 1215 in the Fourth Lateran Council, but don't worry about that. So Lanfranc is a person of significance in the history of doctrine by himself, apart from Anselm. Lanfranc is significant. Uh, Then we can move to another. What happened is that Anselm eventually is persuaded by Lanfranc to become a monk there at Lebec. And very quickly, Anselm's brilliance comes to the surface and he becomes, in effect, the right-hand man of Lanfranc. Well, Lanfranc does not stay in Lebec we haven't got to England yet, by the way. I'm just tr transitioning here. Are you with me? We are now in France, okay? Anselm is a wandering scholar. He lands on the doorstep of Lanfranc. Lanfranc, this famous, learned theologian, says, come on in. Comes into the monastery and Anselm becomes his right-hand man. Within a few years, Anselm succeeds Lanfranc. Lanfranc gets a promotion. A promotion to a very important place. He becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. In 1093, that's right. Lanfranc moves from France. There's one little intermediate place. and Then he ends up in as Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1093. No, excuse me. Lanfranc becomes Archbishop in 1070. I'm sorry. That, that 1093 refers to uh, his successor. So Lanfranc in 1070 is promoted and becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. And Anselm then follows him and is later on becomes his successor also as the Archbishop of Canterbury. So Lanfranc and Anselm become successive Archbishops of Canterbury. 
immediately. In 1093, Anselm becomes Archbishop of Canterbury in England. Let me tell you the story about England. Uh, Anselm, as the abbot now in France, from time to time made trips to England on business matters. And uh, he went over there. And this is just after Lanfranc had died. And he had become a scholar of note. And the bishops and the other clerics invited Anselm to become the archbishop. He said no. So what happens is, is that the ruler in England at this time is William Rufus. I'll, I'll backpedal here just a moment. But William Rufus was a wretched soul. And he said, I want you to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anselm says no. So what happens is, the bishops grab Anselm. They forcibly open his clenched fist and make him embrace the staff, the insignia of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he is physically compelled against his will to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, you know the general story, don't you, about England? This is a crucial time. England is, has just been invaded by William of Normandy, also called William the Conqueror. And he won England in the famous Battle of Hastings, 1066. You all know this. It's somewhere locked away in your computer banks. Every high school history student knows the date 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. William of Normandy. Well, he died in 1087 and he was succeeded by his son, William Rufus, also called the Red King because he had red hair. I call him Rufus the Goofus because he was a wretched soul. Rufus hated Christianity and he hated clerics even more. He was a profane man. He loved to blaspheme God. In fact, one time he had a severe illness and then he recovered. And this is what he said. God shall never see me ever become a good man. I have suffered too much at his hands. The people said of Rufus the Red King. This gives you a sense of how he was perceived. Rufus, they say, he arose every morning a worse man and went to bed every evening a worse man still. He was the kind of guy who loved to watch people being tortured to death. What a jerk. <laughs> you got... And even worse, he enjoyed having animals tortured as well. Even worse, that's... <laughs> For those of you who are... advocates of animal rights, I needed to do that. But anyway... Well, 
Rufus. How do you spell Goofus? <laughs> we have a letter. I'll have this. This. I'll read a quick letter. You can imagine Anselm now, who is a very bright. Uh, he's a very, very pious man, uh, concerned about godliness. Finds himself in the highest ecclesiastical position in England. And the king under which, under whom he serves is this wretched William Rufus. You can imagine the two would clash. And they did. Four years after having uh, become forcibly the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm writes this letter. He says, it is well known, he writes to the Pope, he said, it is well known to many persons, Holy Father, that by violence, very much against my will and despite my protestations, I was captured for the bishop's seat in England and have been held captive there. Everyone knows how fervently I urged upon the people that my nature, my age, my weaknesses, my ignorance were all unsuitable to this office. And now I have been archbishop for four years and I have achieved nothing. I have lived useful, uselessly and in fear with confusion of spirit so that every day I wish that I might die as far from England as I could. Anselm is not a happy camper. Uh, particularly we have a man like William Rufus in charge. And this clash is nowhere seen better than in the so-called investiture controversy. The investiture controversy. In a nutshell, this is nothing other than a battle between church and state. And it concerns who has the right to appoint bishops. That's the basic idea in investiture. The king, Rufus, claimed that it was his right to appoint and to then invest clerics with the insignia of their authority, their ecclesiastical authority, that being a staff or a ring. Now, what you need to appreciate about the right of investiture, of appointing and giving the person his insignia of his office, is that in the Middle Ages, the bishop, the right of investiture, was viewed very much like the relationship of a king and his vassal. So that when the king had the right to appoint you his bishop, you not only became a bishop of the church, but you also became a vassal to the king, taking an oath of allegiance, not to the pope, but to the king. So there was a lot at stake in having the right of investiture. It meant that the king could gain this vow of obedience from the bishops. All of this meant that it gave the king more power over the church. If all of these bishops owed their office to him, then he had power over them. And for, in the case of William Rufus, it meant he could make money. So, there's this, this king 
vassal kind of relationship in, that's at stake in the right of investiture. What often happened is that when the bishop died, automatically the office reverted back to the king. And what would he do with it, King Rufus? Sell it to the highest bidder. That's called simony. It was a problem that plagued the church all throughout the Middle Ages, the buying and selling of church offices. In this case, simony was the problem that William Rufus had. He, was, he had these, these offices and he would sell them to the highest bidder, making money uh, off of these offices. Okay. The investiture controversy, you have an idea of what's involved. It's a very serious matter. It's worth fighting over, really. Two phases. Phase one. Anselm, having become Archbishop of Canterbury, although he didn't want to become the Archbishop, once he was consecrated, took his, his job very seriously. And so he sought to appoint new bishops and to restore the church in England. But Rufus says, you cannot appoint bishops. I have the right of appointment, the right of investiture. So the king and the archbishop had a war, in effect. Anselm refused to be the vassal to the king. And he insisted that the right of investiture belonged with the church. And he, as the highest official in England, possessed the right of investiture. At one point, Rufus says, I'm putting you on trial. Anselm says, I'm not coming. And he didn't. <laughs> they didn't get along at all. And what finally broke the deadlock was an arrow. At 3 p.m. on August the 2nd, 1100 A.D. If you write down 3 p.m., you are very gullible. On August the 2nd, 1100, while William Rufus was out hunting, an arrow pierced his heart. And nobody knows whether that arrow was fired by a hunter who missed his prey or an assassin. But nobody bothered to ask who it was. Everybody was overjoyed that he was dead. Nobody cared that he was gone. One scholar writes, he received a popular excommunication when he died. No bell was tolled, no prayer was said, no alms were given for the soul, for the ruler whose eternal damnation was taken for granted by all men. Not a popular kind of guy. <laughs> Phase two. Rufus was succeeded by his brother, Henry. Henry I. Henry was a vast improvement over his brother, Rufus. But even though he was a much nicer human being, 
he still wanted the right of investiture. So again, Anselm did battle with the successor, with Henry I. Henry ignored Anselm and instituted a number of his own appointees as new bishops. Anselm refused to acknowledge those bishops. And Anselm was sent into exile. And he was in exile from 1103 to 1106. Anselm was. But now due to the kind heart of a woman, matters between Henry I and Anselm were resolved. Henry I had the good fortune to be married to Maud the Good. Maud the Good. Good Queen Maud, as I call her. Good Queen Maud very much appreciated Anselm. He was a man of great learning and a man of great piety. And so she became, in effect, a mediator between her husband, Henry I, and Anselm, good Queen Maud. And Queen Maud urged Anselm to return to England. She said, you are needed here. Your leadership is needed. Work with Henry and I'll work with you on Henry. Well, those bishops that had been chosen by Henry I were excommunicated by Pope Pascal, Paschal II, uh, that Henry had wanted. And Maud the Good encouraged Henry and Anselm to have a face-to-face meeting. And they met in France, where Anselm had, been, had gone into exile. And they met in Normandy at a meeting in 1106. And there, because primarily of the influence of the queen, Henry I and Anselm reached an agreement. The agreement had three provisions. The first provision. All of those nominees that had just been excommunicated by the Pope were to now be accepted in the Church of England. Those appointees which the Pope had excommunicated were now reinstalled and made and acknowledged as bishops in England. So Henry won that one. Remember I said the Pope, that the reason for the exile of Anselm was because he would not acknowledge those bishops that Henry I wanted to be made bishops. And so the Pope was on the side of Anselm. And so he excommunicated those bishops that he felt were illegally made bishops. So when the two get together the first area of compromise is to grant Henry those bishops. The second provision is that in the future, underline the word future, in the future, the right of investiture would belong 
not to the king, but to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anselm won that one. The right of investiture in the future now lay with the Archbishop of Canterbury. But the third provision, the third provision was that the king had the right of nomination of all bishops. So he could nominate those whom he wanted for the consideration of the archbishop. So that was sort of a, a nod to, the, to Henry, that he still had some power over these bishops. Uh, I think that Anselm could have his own nominations, but in addition to that, the king could nominate his group as well. So this is an effort, this is an effort at compromise and cooperation. Having made this agreement at 1106 in Normandy, Anselm returns triumphant to England. And this agreement is formally acknowledged in the Council of Westminster in 1107. In 1107, the Council of Westminster. On a concluding note, it turns out that Henry I and Anselm ended up becoming good friends. Can you believe it? Uh, in fact, a couple of years later, when uh, Henry had to take a trip to the continent, he left the reins of government with Anselm while he was gone. So close had their relationship become in those two or three years. So it's a, it has a happy ending. Isn't that nice? So Anselm's last couple of years of life were tranquil. He had a king with whom he could work. And Anselm died quietly in April 1109. Having won, having wrestled the right of investiture away from the king of England. Good for Anselm. Clarification. Yes, I, I didn't give you the whole story there. I'm, I'm okay. He had the story is simply this: uh, Rufus fell ill, thought he was going to die, and he called the highest-ranking cleric around to come to his bedside to minister to him in his hour of need. Anselm came and was, was wonderful to him. Uh, the, the bad news is, is that he recovered from this illness. And so in gratitude, he demanded that he become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, it, it, William Rufus is uh, not a guy that you'd like on your team, uh, I don't think. Let's press on here and look at the theology of Anselm. Anselm is uh, absolutely brilliant. I was talking to Dr. Nicole just a few days ago, and we were talking about Aquinas and Anselm, and he said, 
Aquinas is okay, but Anselm is really something special. So he, he thinks and appreciates Anselm a great deal, and, and there's good reason for appreciating him. Anselm, here, just sort of intro stuff, is uh, very much the scholastic in that he's constantly wrestling with this question of the relationship between faith and reason. Faith and reason. This is a worthy question for us today to wrestle with. Anselm came up with two very famous propositions. They are Fides Quarens Intellectum Faith Seeking Knowledge. You got everybody see that? Fides Quarens Intellectum Faith Seeking Knowledge. And the other one is called Credo Ut Intelligam. Credo ut intelligam. I believe in order that I may understand or that I may know. This is another way of saying that faith precedes understanding. I really believe that. That if you really want to understand things, the way to do that is in the context of belief, of faith. Uh, I believe so that, or in order that, I may understand. All of this is another way of saying that faith precedes intellectual understanding. Mm-hmm. There were there were some divisions on that. Sure, uh, Abelard does is sort of the the, the uh, opposite of Anselm, to be sure. Uh, but you know, even with with someone like Aquinas, uh, he will not discount faith at all. So, in some ways, one might argue that Abelard is is uh, an aberration to the general trend. Uh, and even with Anselm, I'm. He is, some have charged him with being a rationalist by putting so much emphasis on reason. But if you look at Anselm very carefully, you'll always find that the importance of faith is first. And I see that in particular in his famous ontological argument. I'll, I'll point that out as I go along. Uh, incidentally, again, this idea of faith preceding knowledge, faith preceding understanding... Uh, faith preceding rational understanding of theological issues. That is a theme that is found as well in Augustine. In fact, this, these, this statement here is very much uh, a copy of what you find in Augustine. I believe in order that I might understand. Anselm said, He who does not believe has not felt. And he who has not felt does not does not understand. In other words, the head and the heart go together. I believe that 
one cannot truly be a theologian if it is not if it is if it is simply a matter of the head true theology will affect the heart and if it doesn't affect the heart then you don't understand theology and that's very much in this same approach now there's another side of all this for Anselm as much as he stressed that faith precedes knowledge he felt that those who have faith commit the sin of neglect if they don't continue to seek after knowledge once they become a Christian or exercise faith. For him, it is not enough to just have faith and to stop there, to cut off your head in effect, to stop thinking as a Christian. And evangelicals need to hear this desperately. We're all feeling and no intellect. And Anselm would say, yes, faith, feeling, precedes knowledge. But it don't just stop at faith. Have faith, but have, make it a faith that is seeking knowledge. And if you stop seeking theology or knowledge, you have committed the sin of neglect. Here, here. Okay. Anselm, fortified by faith, then seeks to give a rational demonstration of a number of key doctrines. He seeks, or having faith, he seeks to give a rational explanation for the Trinity of all things. He seeks to give a rational demonstration for the existence of God. Imagine that. And he also seeks to give a rational demonstration for the Incarnation. Each of those corresponds precisely with those books, those famous books that he wrote. Let's see if I can find it. Just very quickly, Monologium. That is a book in which, having faith, Anselm seeks to rationally demonstrate the being of God and the Trinity. Do you see the idea here? Faith, seeking, understanding, having faith in Christ, he then seeks to understand rationally demonstrate the Trinity. Is he successful? I'm dubious. But he tries. He's trying to understand the Trinity. And that's what the monologium is, in a nutshell. One of the very interesting things is, is he stresses that what he's trying to do is he's trying to build a case on reason for the Trinity. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary.
To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.